In the streets of Laredo I walked out in Laredo one day I spied a poor cowboy Wrapped up in white linen All wrapped in white linen As cold as the clay Well, hello. Welcome back to the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Um, and we are working on the letters between Robert E. Howard and, and Lovecraft, specifically those written um, from October until December 1932. So until the end of 1932. And this will actually finish up the first volume of A Means to Freedom, which is where we, we have the published version of these of these uh, numerous letters. Uh, so, we, so we saw in the last episode... Uh, the debate between these two on issues on, like on civilization, on the role of sports, on alcohol, on a variety of issues really become a little bit more heated. Um, largely, I think, because of Lovecraft kind of overreacting to some of the, the comments that, that Howard made and not fully appreciating, I guess, the, like the nuance of his argument. I mean, I, I think these letters really do put Lovecraft in kind of a negative light I think um, I really do think Howard comes off from these a little bit more of a thoughtful reflective thinker um, but that's just my opinion I don't know maybe maybe you're with Lovecrafting you think Howard is just a little bit too too flighty in this thinking and not grounded enough or whatever but you know I, th I think I'd rather talk to Howard I guess than, than Lovecraft after after reading these but um, um, where we start here is October 3rd, a pretty long letter by, by Lovecraft to, to Howard, about 30 pages long. Uh, there's actually not many letters in this section for us to look at. I think less than 10, and that includes a few short like postcards and, and maybe some non-existent letters. So it's, it's only, we're only going to look at a handful of letters this time. And, and to the degree that they're repetitive, I'm not going to uh, belabor certain points. But I think it's, you know, I think it's, it's kind of fun to, to read through these. A uh, little bit of a change in my quarantine day. Um, I was, you know, I get, an e I get a text message every day from the, like the Center for Disease Control in Taiwan. And uh, one of the questions they ask me, here it is. If you feel normal, reply one. Okay. If you've developed fever, runny nose, cough, breathing, you've lost a smell or taste, diarrhea, malaise, or limb weakness. I, my favorite is the malaise thing. Cause it's like, geez, I'm in quarantine. I think I don't feel a little bit of malaise. So it's a, something's lost in translation there, I guess. Um, I guess under the weather is, 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 is what they're getting at here. But malaise, certainly feel that. But trying to... Uh, change up the day as much as possible so anyways um this letter how uh lovecraft's letter to howard uh we start out with a you know a, a, some some commentary on civilization and you know they they were going back and forth pretty pretty heavy on this question this is really the crux of the matter everything kind of evolves from this i feel you know howard wasn't saying this is a preference he just sees the value i guess in in the life of the barbarian and he doesn't think civilization is necessarily the best way for human flourishing. I actually kind of agree with with Howard on this. Um, you know, it's it's only within an era of like a within. It's certainly not what we evolved for, right? Uh, you know, if we, the life we evolved for is, I guess, the Paleolithic, right? We've for most of human history we were hunter gatherers, right? So that's sort of what we evolved for. That's what our bodies were prime for that's where our psychology was groomed for that kind of ice age affluence world um and civilization is the anomaly that we have to like conform to right which is why you see all this mental illness why you see disease uh food scarcity all these things are products of, of civilization right i do urge you to read uh books like uh civilized to death by chris ryan uh the, the new one by james scott against the grain they, they kind of deal with these questions. Uh, James Scott's a little bit more interested in the roots of civilization, but Chris Ryan really gets into the 
his other book, Sex at Dawn, does the same kind of stuff, but it, it gets into kind of the psychology of, of the hunter-gatherer or whatever. But I don't want to get off topic here uh, too much, uh, or do, on too many asides, I guess. It's, it's on topic, but it's a bit of an aside. Um, so he kind of backtracks here. Lovecraft says, well, what I really mean is for those who take advantage fully of civilization, that's where the advantage is, which is kind of a high... Uh, I guess that's true <laughs> as well. It's like... You know, if you have certain advantages, I, I was kind of pissed at Lovecraft earlier because he said something like, um, you know, like about alcohol, right? He said, oh, drink's not the best way for the working class to improve their life. It'd be better if they had other supports or something. It's like, yeah, but you don't even support the f goddamn bonus army. Well, you're not going to be backing anything politically that's actually going to improve the life of the working class. So what, what the hell are you really talking about here? Anyways, um, but he does say where he might find some common ground with Howard, and he does try to find it here, is to say, look, civilizations will become decadent, they will decline, um, and that will mean civilization won't provide the same kind of happiness it did at his peak, right? He, he's enamored with the peak of civilizations, I guess, right? So it's like he, why he, he gravitates to certain... Like when he says he likes Rome, and he's, I think he's talking about a specific period of Rome is what he's fond of. When you look at Roman history, it's like a thousand years, right? From its founding to its final fall. Longer if you include the Byzantine Empire. And, you know, what is Lovecraft's fascination with? It's probably like a century or so, right? In, in the peak of the empire, whatever. Um, so then we got some stuff on uh, games again. They... They go back and forth a lot about physicality and physical games, and I think it's it's actually a pretty f f fascinating conversation at times. Um, you know, it comes down to the question of barbarism in a way, but um, but it's somewhat separate. So I, I kind of mark it down here as almost a philosophical conversation. And again, you see kind of Lovecraft bouncing around his ideas, trying to find maybe some common ground here. I think this letter is a little bit more toned down in some areas than others uh, that we've seen. Where he sort of says, well, I don't mean phys physical games are bad necessarily. I just sort of mean all games are kind of stupid, and, and especially games with rules. And, you know, that's it's kind of a waste of time, I, which I don't get. I like games, but he sort of says they're kind of artificial as opposed to true mental cultivation, which would be more organic, I guess. Um, you see, I don't consider physical games any more artificial than mental ones, but I consider all games more artificial than inevitable struggles in real life where the occurrences and conditions are not prearranged. All right, um, but I think he doesn't understand the point of games, I guess. that here, the Part of the point is not to replicate what we actually have in life. Otherwise, why would we play them, right? It's to maybe develop certain skills it's for sociability it's for you know improving ourselves physically improving ourselves mentally perhaps you know i think he's kind of blinkered to the fact that maybe games might improve one's uh, capacity to solve uh real world problems as they might emerge he even mentions a friend of his who's fond of cryptograms and puzzles and things well people do that stuff because it, it it's it's an educational exercise um, but anyways, I, I think we do see Lovecraft here a little bit more toned down, for better or for worse. Um, then he takes on the, another kind of thing they're going back and forth on, which is uh, supernatural, the supernatural. And his view on this, you know, he just doesn't believe the supernatural really exists. And... Um, and certainly, he, he says, well, don't fall into the trap of, of kind of the fallacy of, of authority if someone you know more distinguished than you claims that there's something supernatural doesn't mean that it exists that's true of course there's good skepticism in this part of his letters i suppose um but he again he comes comes off a little blockheaded at times a little incapable of 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 he doesn't come off as very as open-minded as as I think Howard does. And it's fine. I mean, he sounds like I, I may have sounded when I first became an atheist or something, right? Like one of those annoying uh, young atheists who, you know, 
reject anything that's that's not explainable by science, right? And they become kind of scientists, scientism, followers of scientism instead, or whatever. Uh, anyways, um, now what he does say make a point here. I, I, I appreciate though, and that is, you know, we kind of do need scholars, and you know, the fact that I can't explain anything, everything, or the fact that you can't explain everything, or even a great mind we meet can't explain everything doesn't mean such explanations don't exist or that we should turn towards the supernatural uh, instead we need what you know educated people exploring their little corner of academia you know to really advance knowledge they piece it, we piece it together though it's kind of a collective experience of piecing together our knowledge and that becomes evidence that we have to rely on right you know so many skeptics whether it's like climate change skeptics or or covid skeptics or whatever they say like in my experience i don't feel this so i'm not going to trust scientists when you know i'm not going to or the scientists admit they don't know x y and z and therefore i'm going to throw that out right and i think lovecraft's approach is the more mature one here saying yeah that's not how that's not how scholarship and knowledge building really works you're not looking for a we don't have a newton anymore who's going to like explain the system of the world Um, then he gets into some social welfare things. That's, I guess, another th thread that their conversations on is the question of of social welfare and just general politics. And it, th there's different ways they talk about it. One is this kind of revolutionary moment that 32, 33, 1934 really were in America. And much of their letters, many of their letters, especially in the later half of them, are, are kind of in that moment. So they're concerned about, like, is there going to be a revolution? What will that mean? Is it possible? Uh, and then, of course, in the backdrop, although they don't really address it too much formally, you know, the New Deal and then and, and, you know, Roosevelt's efforts to try to reform the economy. Um, but also more broadly, the philosophical questions about what's going to be the proper form of politics in a in this kind of mechanized civilization that we see um, that he that he sees coming well like at least uh, lovecraft sees coming um and there's some thoughtful aspects here to this he's you know he does sort of mix up like fascism and socialism at times so sometimes when people say well he sort of became a bit of a socialist later in life and they read letters like this but really his kind of socialism was sort of like a he, he even calls it this fascistic he calls it fascistic at times um, but he wants to avoid kind of the lesson like the Russian Revolution coming because he thinks that's worse you know whatever however bad our world is something like the Russian Revolution would be worse because it would ruin art right it's it's very much how you know how Wagner supported revolution because he thought it would more, more facilitate the kind of art he wanted I mean I think Lovecraft sometimes does not want socialism because he thinks it's going to undermine what he thinks good art is. He doesn't really, at the end of the day, care that much about the plight of, of the lower classes. Um, so anyways, here I'll read a bit and you can kind of understand where he's coming from maybe a little bit. Um, Similar blocks and intimidative societies composed of laborers and other economic sufferers are likely to force the visible government into necessary measures like artificially regulated employment schedules, unemployment insurance, old age pensions, and the like. The industries behind the government will yield because they will be afraid of total economic and social collapse if they don't. Their motive for handling out all of this handing out will be the same as those of the earlier grabbing in. Simple desire for survival under the best optimal conditions is a case of dog-eat-dog dog like everything else in life. Every man grabs all he can, and the strongest combination wins. Equitable distribution implies a more even balance of strength between opposing combinations. To compensate for the need for reducing profits, the major industries will probably combine and coordinate even more extensively than at present in order to avoid the waste of duplicate manufacture and unusable surpluses. Some, something roughly resembling the Soviet planned economy will probably be adopted by the industries of most capitalist nations. Agriculture will probably become a corporation matter, end quote. And what he's sort of getting at here, I think, is something similar to what John Kenneth Galbraith argued in terms of, like, uh, opposing strength, right? How if you have, like, strong corporations, you're going to have this, there's going to be counteractive with strong government or strong unions or something, which, of course, also would then lead to stronger combination among capital. 
that you're going to end up with bigger, bigger institutions. Um, and then he, he Calbraith provided empirical evidence of that being true in the United States, but I think we can think of other societies where this sort of emerged. And he's kind of saying something like that will happen to take away kind of this ideal fantasy uh, American capitalist, this fantasy of democratic capitalism won't exist, but it doesn't anyways, right? So he gets in a lot of this, but he does think there, I guess he's more skeptical of, of the potential for revolt than I think Howard is. He says maybe, but, you know, he says really it's going to be the foreigners who are going to do it. It's not going to be good, hardworking Americans who are going to revolt. It's going to be those foreigners um, who would be the real radical ones. And he's like, I don't really know what's going to go on in Texas. But, you know, my impression here is that it's going to be mostly foreign laborers who would lead any such revolt. Now, where they get really, they have a, I think these, these letters really get really, get, get quite fun when they talk about law and order and policing and crime. And they've been talking about it throughout to one degree or another, but it really kind of gets pretty, um, pretty hostile by this point in their friendship. Because uh, Howard's saying like all cops are bastards, at least they are down here in Texas and, and, and Lovecraft can't imagine a world without police which I think is pretty hilarious because he's got such this imagination for so many things, but, you know, uh, not, a, uh, not having a strong police force would just be the end of civilization as you know it. Um, and he's really thinks you need a modern police force to, to function as a society, right? Yeah. Has no sympathy for any criminality at all, for no matter the cause. It's almost hilarious to read at times. He does say maybe there's too many laws, but that doesn't necessarily mean laws don't have to be followed and obeyed. He's really a law and order kind of guy. Um, and you may have met these people who, who might present radical or uh, ideas on some aspects when it comes to, but when it comes to something like schools or policing or prisons, they just, you know, they become essentially indistinguishable from a right winger because they can't imagine a world where they don't have that feeling of security and safety, right? Where if autonomy was truly given to society, it really ter that idea really terrifies them. Um, but he does take on some of, the, of Howard's responses where Howard says, yeah, but police are corrupt. Police are unnecessarily violent. And on the violence, you know, Lovecraft eventually says, I don't know if it's in this letter or later, when he eventually says, like, yeah, if there's a crazy drunk guy doing crimes, you know, one policeman can't just, like, walk up to him and say hey bro let's let's fight let's wrestle you know they're gonna send five to ten guys to take down the one guy just because that's the prudent practical thing to do it's not excessive force to do that right it's just it's just practical because in in the real world it's not it's not it's not it's not a boxing ring um but he just said yeah there's probably corruption to you he's he's less sympathetic to this idea that police are are inherently Violent. He just thinks that's just what police have to do to solve their problems, um, to s or to solve law enforcement problems as they come up. I realize that a reserve of combative force and a willingness to bring it on an occasion is at the base of individual and national integrity, and the consequently a significant significant of primitive primitive combat as a symbol is still vi vi valid and potent. Even in regions where no combat as such, where combat as such is no longer a daily ingredient of life, that's that's kind of interesting idea. How you know why does the Wild West, with its certain vision of law and order and lawlessness, exist in the popular imagination when it doesn't really function anymore in life? And he's saying, well, it, it does have that kind of romantic nostalgia experience. So anyways, there's a little bit more in this letter, but I think we've, we've seen the major threads of where their conversation is. And that's how these letters read, as they, they basically deal with one after another. And, you know, if they respond to what the previous writer said, pretty much in the same order. Uh, and so there's a back and forth. It's like, it's like five or six different conversations at a time. That's one reason these letters get sort of a little bit inflated, but it's, um, they're fun to read, certainly. So we get a short little note. And, you know, I noticed that only Lovecraft writes like the postcards and the short notes. I've, I haven't seen any by Howard. I've seen a couple short letters by Howard. Uh, and then later on, there'd be a longer letter by Howard. 
but the really short little notes are always by the, by Lovecraft. So Lovecraft would he'd be traveling, or he'd be, and he would think of Howard, and he would write a little note and or, or attach an article and send it to him. You know, he's a little bit more generous in that way than 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 Howard, who, as far as I can tell, doesn't doesn't do that very much, um, if at all. But this little note is about strange tales uh, being discontinued, uh, which is another uh, weird fiction magazine of the time. So Strange Tales was pretty short-lived. It was from 1931 to 33. Um, so, but this was the, the competitor to Weird Tales at the time. Um, but it only lasted for a short period. So that's all to say about it. Seven issues. Only seven issues. That's too bad. But... The market wasn't big enough to support, I guess, more than one weird fiction magazine at the time. At the time. So anyways, then we get uh, Howard's response to Lovecraft's long letter. Um, and this is dated November 2nd. Um, and it's, it's another pretty long one. Uh, like the core, le there's something like 125 or so, 28 maybe letters or correspondences documented by these editors and they're that are listed in order and numbered but only a third of them are significant letters and and those are that's the bulk of it right because the rest are like little short fragment like little pieces like the little postcard things that, that lovecraft sends um so you know the letters do tend to get long and they, they get a little bit longer uh, at this point in their correspondence because there, there's a lot on the table that they're trying to work out between themselves now this one begins with an apology because howard pretty clearly noticed that that the correspondence was getting a little nasty and he apologizes and says you know you know i get a little churlish at times and i get a little peaked you know when you started picking on sports i got peaked and i'm sorry i don't really mean it you're my good friend whatever you know he gets that out of the way but he does um you know, he even says, this isn't your fault. It's my own lack of vocabulary and clumsiness of expression, which he doesn't have at all. You know, it's just, again, a, the younger writer sort of uh, slightly rolling over to the more mature mentor, I suppose. Um, uh, he says, I don't really mean, you know, you think I have contempt for people in the East. I don't. You think I have contempt for scholars. I don't. That's not really what I'm trying to say here. Um, and then he kind of gets into, a, I think, what is a very personal reflection on the question of, of sports uh, and physicality. I guess the philosophy of physicality is, is, I guess, if I had to call this something. Um, and I think we get, we get most of it maybe in, the, in a later letter here where he has a really long conversation about this. We'll, we'll see. Maybe I'm mixing these up. Maybe we already talked about it. But he... He says it's kind of like more by nature. I've been sort of hardwired to have this affinity towards athleticism. And he even says like you get this impression of me as some guy brawling uh, through through southern through East Texas, and that's not really the case either. I'm, I'm a pretty timid guy. It's just there's something in me that leads me to to want to maximize myself, my my capacities physically. I, I still think he's a little bit, uh, he's being the more mature thinker in ways in, in being more open to different experiences and different values. Um, what else do we got here? Uh, he's, he mentioned a little bit about the economy um, and the possibility of future economic conditions. Um, and he's just got this, and this is where we see him as a kind of a young kind of bold thinker. He just says, like, I see slavery all around us, whether it's peonage or wage labor or whatever. It's basically slavery, and we need to somewhat get through this system. We need to overthrow this, this system, you know. He just doesn't have much. He doesn't see that much worth preserving, I suppose, in the way that Lovecraft sees a lot worthy of preservation, even in this decadent society. In fact, the fact that we're becoming decadent is more reason to kind of preserve the foundations of our civilization. Uh, in his mind, Howard just sort of says, you know, fuck it all um, at times. And this is one of those moments where he just sort of reduces all these different economic relations to, to kind of different forms of debt slavery. 
So now he does something. He goes back to the barbarism and civilization thing. And again, he kind of apologizes and says, I, you know, maybe I was going a little bit too far in my rhetoric or at times. Let me try to explain a little bit better where I'm being, getting at. And what he ends up doing here, and I think this is where he first starts doing, doing this, is starts talking about Na- Native Americans as a type of, as an example of, of, of barbarians who seem in, in his mind to have a more fulfilled and rich life than people living in, in so-called civilizations, right? Now, of course, we need to asterisk this and say, yes, obviously we now know, we now know it's, we can't just reduce Indians to this. I mean, barbarian itself is kind of a, a useless term. I mean, this, this comes up in James Scott's book, Against the Grain, where he uses the term barbarians, not in this traditional pejorative way, but he's trying to reclaim them. But at the same time, you know, just because people aren't, in settled agricultural villages or something doesn't mean they're not civilized, right? That's a, that's that was a term used to justify taking people's lands and genociding, you know, inflicting genocide on them and treating them as well less worthy of respect, um, and even to disrespect their lives, right? Um, so I'm not doing that, and Howard might be. I don't think he's doing that either, but. When we use this term barbarian, it is loaded, right? So that's whatever. I think you get my point. But he does sort of say, well, maybe he, you know, the Indians do have this documented kind of rich culture and experiences, and they never were civilized, right? You know, he's like, they're not really in, he, he kind of clearly rejects the idea of Indian inferiority. Um, at least he 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 shades it. I guess he does. I guess he doesn't say they're not inferior, but he sort of shades this concept of Indian inferiority and says, "Yeah, maybe, but boy, are they interesting, and they seem to have a rich life." Um, listen to this. But returning to the inferiority of Western Indians, I am not aware whether this was due to their nomadic life or whether the life was due to their inability to develop a settled mode of living in agriculture. At any rate, it was not until the advent of white men that the Western tribes amounted to much. The introduction of the horse into the country was what made them powerful. In some cases, alliances with the whites increased their power. This was especially true of the Pawnees, who had been harried and slaughtered for generations by the Sioux. They were shrewd enough to throw in their lot with the settlers, and whole companies of regular cavalry formed the Pawnee Braves, were used by the Sioux in the Sioux Wars. The uniform presence a rather peculiar aspect, since they were always cut the seat of the britches. When they started across the prairie on a chart, on a charge, they started shedding their clothes, and before the concussion came, were riding in their loincloths, yelling and shouting like madmen. They were good fighters, especially against hereditary foes, but they were hard to control during the battle and afterwards. End quote. But he, you know, he starts this by saying, "Yeah, they're you know, with I guess what we would now say is problematic language." But there's a lot of like love for the Indians expressed here, I think and a love for their way of life and, and, and an affection for it, right? And he talks about different, he talks about the Comanches as the horse thieves. He talks about, uh, and then he jumps even to dueling uh, and, and how dueling is a part of American culture in places like New Orleans. So I think Howard's kind of, you know, in a letter, you're not always going to get this formal argument laid out. But what he's trying to get to is an argument, it seems, that that this kind of barbarian undertone is is intermixed with American culture. It's it's in and with American culture, right? And it's not something, it's not an either or necessarily. It's something that is ingrained in and what, and can't be so easily separated out, I suppose. Um, now he's less willing to compromise, I think on the question of law and order and, and crime. Now, ultimately he starts to say like, we're not that different, you and I. I'm just sort of looking at things a slightly different way. We basically agree on a lot of these issues, whether it's barbarism, civilization, law and order, whatever. He's just looking at it. He's just, I'm just looking at it in a slightly different way and asking certain questions about it. No reason to get puffed up, uh, HPL. Um, but he kind of says, you got to understand Texas, man. You know, here the police are basically all corrupt and they're violent and they're, they're just not good. No one likes them. No one wants the police to come to their door in this neck of the woods. You know, it's like maybe someone from a small town talking to someone from, you know, 
Chicago or something or, or Baltimore and having a very different experience with the police. It's like you just don't know what it's like. Yeah, you're a little in your little town of 5,000, your police might not give you too much trouble, but, you know, if you knew what I knew, kind of thing. All right, so that, that I guess there's a little, there's, that's enough about the, that letter. There's a, there's a lot of good stuff in it. Um, yeah, these letters do get a bit repetitive from time to time. That's okay. Now, then we have two, a back and forth between the two. Uh, first, Howard writing a short letter, a one-page letter, and then Lovecraft's response, I guess, as a little note. Were they talking about blonde people <laughs> and, and the distribution of blondes in, in, the, country, in the country? So, Whatever. That's what they did. Here's, here's uh, Lovecraft's view on it. The difference certainly does appear to be phenomenally striking, and not altogether due to foreign blood, since the list of South Texan brunette athletes contains a good sprinkling of old American names, Stratford, Hilliard, Fagan, Dubois, Bridgewell, Blayton. The prevalence of pure blonde types in Fort Worth, which you mentioned once before, is very striking. Scandinavian types sometimes have a distinguishing physiognomy, due mostly, I fancy, to modifications caused by diet and climate. But in part to the tinicure of Lapfin Terranian blood or Terranian blood, which some of the peasantry possesses. So it's just him being very, very much a eugenicist to think thinker. Um, yeah, he was a, he, he, he bought into the eugenic arguments of the time. And there they are. Now, the, the next uh, long letter we get is November 7th uh, to Howard from Lovecraft. Now, this letter begins with uh, Lovecraft saying, yeah, these arguments might get heated from time to time, but they're not really offensive because we're friends and we're not, there's no ill will. And, you know, it's a, just a debate and we're having, we're all, we're all having good fun, which is, is good. At least he doesn't uh, get too nasty about it. Um where else? They, they, he actually spends a lot of time early in this letter talk responding to something Howard said about how maybe he, maybe I'm not cut it out, cut out to be a writer, and and Lovecraft really says no, that's not true at all. You really do have, you're an excellent writer, and he gives a lot of examples and evidence of this. I get the feeling there's a lot early on in this letter, anyways, where he's trying to to step away from some of the issues that. That we're making their correspondence a little bit uh, nastier. Um, but he kind of gets into some philosophical ground here about um, about things like what makes us a civilization worthy of defense? Because even Lovecraft would determine that not every civilization is equally worthy of defense and sacrifice for. Um, and then how do we actually kind of measure the superiority of one civilization or another, making more worthy of, of defense? I mean, this gets to the whole question. If I take a spectrum from barbarism to civilization, you know, where, you know, what's worth defending here, right? It may not be every civilization is equally worth, worthy of defending. You know, I think how we're, like Lovecraft would certainly see a difference between the two, but maybe there's a continuity here, right? And he kind of even gets into some kind of what he calls like life philosophy here. It's kind of difficult to parse out fully what he's saying in this um, section. Um, he says, for instance, on the one hand, it's undesirable to inflict pain and hardship, which could otherwise be avoided upon the bulk of the people for the sake of propping up a disproportionate heights, any arbitrary fraction of the people, or even to impose avoidable mild discomfort or restrictions on the majority for the sake of any minority elevation. Ele elevation and quote which is kind of an interesting argument against class society right because what is class society if not the suffering of the majority to uplift a small minority or even a large minority but a minority nonetheless and so to the degree a civilization does that that makes it less worthy of defense if it's not fulfilling a job of like raising the values for raising life for everyone or raising intellectual life for everyone or whatever it might be which is, he's actually making a pretty decent socialist argument. It's, it's actually a pity he didn't uh, see that himself and fully embrace some type of socialism. I just think he was so afraid of of kind of like some anti-art movements. Um, you know, and you know, the Nazis would be, were anti-art. I guess they hadn't come to power yet in Germany, but when they come to power, they're going to be anti-art. Uh, 
but it was art that Lovecraft never liked in the first place. It's like that modernist art, the decadent art that, you know, Lovecraft might have deep down said, yeah, it's good we get rid of some of that stuff. But, um, but anyways, here's, here's that, that was on the one hand, right? On the one hand, he's saying it's not good to privilege a few at the expense of the majority. But then he says this, looking from the other angle, we may consider it clearly undesirable to load power and necessary favors on wholly undeveloped majority when that loading would defeat the increased fullness of life to what a considerable and constantly growing number of individuals could attain if aided by more intelligent and far-seated appropriation of privilege, end quote. So now he's, he kind of flipped back to like the gospel of wealth idea almost. It's like if you've, if you've read a Carnegie's speech, the gospel of wealth, um, or unless you're old enough to hear it yourself. Um, you know, you're pretty old, I suppose. But this, basically the speech said, um, we need to, like it, it's the rich have money not for their own pleasure and, and, and life, right? It's they're like the caretakers of wealth because if it was more evenly distributed across society, if the products of industrial society were distributed equally, then it would be squandered by... A majority that's not really capable of using it right so the rich become the caretakers of the wealth of a society and i want you know sometimes that's reflected in things like you know charity and uh, investment in infrastructure or buildings right building an opera house whatever it might be but sometimes it's just preserving that wealth right keeping it secure so the wealth is not going doesn't go away but right if you give me the money i'm going to spend it right away you know, but if the rich have it, you know, they'll be able to kind of cultivate it. And he's saying, don't don't put don't create quality if that's going to cause more harm. All right. That's basically what he's saying. Right. To one degree, we shouldn't be propping up a malevolent elite class. On the other hand, you know, creating total equality, which I think is some of the attraction to barbarism, even for people who maybe, you know, don't come out as communist or whatever when they watch something like the walking dead or they watch or they have some affinity towards pre-civilized people the so-called barbarians there's an aspect of equality and a lack of class society in those places that's somehow on on some emotional level at least attractive and and lovecraft here is saying well don't there's a middle ground between the two i suppose where the benefits to the majority can be given through through an unequal distribution of wealth. Now, later, of course, when he imagines what is this kind of civil, what's this government going to be that's going to achieve these goals, he says, so far as I've said, my ideal of a government fitted for the machine age is a fascistic one with certain basic points so firmly embedded in the essential ideology that no laxity or latitude of administration could wholly mollify their operative force. Such points would include the governments in control of industry in a manner designed to spread work and reward as adequately and to eliminate the profit motive as much as possible in favor of the demand supply and motive, a control probably amounting to ownership in the case of large industries, plus a system of pensions and benefits for the unemployed and unemployable. It will likely include adequate public education, both for industry and for increased leisure of the mechanized era, an education not merely utilitarian, but liberal enough to develop its citizens' capacity for saving life on a decently cultivated plane, and that his leisure will be that of a civilized person rather than that of a cinema-haunting, dance-hall-frequenting, pool-hall-room and loafing clot, end quote. Now, if you take out the last part, which he's totally wrong about, obviously... People's leisure time is their own business, how they spend it, and we shouldn't moralize about it. And take out the, that he says this would be fascistic. It sounds not bad. Um, it sounds like a kind of post-scarcity socialism, right? He even kind of imagines a mechanized future where work would be declined, so we need to then distribute leisure fairly, right? And you would need a state maybe to do that or some social institution. He's seen a state. The thing is, I, I just think he doesn't know what fascism is yet. He hasn't really seen it in action. And if he was in 45, he probably would have had different opinions had he lived that long about what fascism actually was. War, genocide, authoritarianism, destruction of art, destruction of, of mental freedom, the kind of stuff he wants to see cultivated. He's not really talking about a fascism here. He just calls it a fascistic one. Um, now, what what he still believes, we see this in his previous letters, he's not a big fan of democracy. Um, 
it's basically calls it a fallacy and an impossibility in, in this day and age. So this is his political ideal. Not that different from what we've seen in the previous letters, I suppose. But anyway, there's some good stuff here. It's an important, I think, letter to look at just for that passage in that section where he tries to work out his ideal government and, and the philosophical foundations of, of why he thinks that's the case. Why he thinks uh, that, whether it's fascistic or not, I, I'm kind of hinting at it. I don't really see it as fascistic, but, you know, why he wants that. Now, he stopped writing, and then he picks up again on November 8th, so... Everything I was just talking about was written on the 7th, and then he picks up right on the 8th a little bit later. And this is on the issue of the policing again, the police and crime and region. And he's kind of like, wow, you surprised me. I didn't know the police were so nasty in Texas because well, we're good friends with the police here. If he was an immigrant, if he was a, someone from the, you know, I guess he didn't have money, but if he, he was part of like the urban working class, he may have had a different experience with the police. If he was a hobo, like uh, Jack London was for a while, he would have thought differently about the police. He would have had a different experience with them. It's really just his perspective is limited by his, his life experience. But he's like, I didn't know police could be that nasty. Wow, you really woke me up to that. Nevertheless, police need to have uh, all the powers they have because, and, and they're good in a variety of ways. He says, well, they help destitute people. They give them housing when they need it, by which he means, you know, Putting them in jail instead of letting them roam freely. He thinks, that's look at all the good work the police are doing. Putting people in jail so they're not out on the street on a cold night. Never thinks of giving them homes. And then he goes so far as to saying, like, maybe we need something like the Klan to be a check on police power. So that's a bit weird. It's like, you went there. You didn't have to go there, but he did. Saying, you know, maybe maybe a nice vigilante element in our societies could knock down the police if they get too out of hand. Maybe that's the balance we need. We just need param we need we need we need you know those we just need vigilantes. We just need Batman. Racist Batman too, right? I don't know if it was Batman racist. Um he's classist at least, right? He does tends to pick on the working class. And mentally ill. Uh, uh, he wants this balance again. Between he's trying to find some common ground. I'll give I'll give Lovecraft some credit. In this letter, there is some effort to find some some common ground with his with his uh, interlocutor. Uh, he picks up writing again on November tenth. You can tell he really struggled with this letter because it took him a few days to... It took him almost a week to write this one. Um, he says, As for barbarism versus civilization, you have given a magnificently graphic and comprehensive picture of barbarian life. Indeed, I don't know when I've ever been seen a more understanding and convincing summing up of the oddly motivated shadow-haunted existence of our primitive forebears. You certainly have no Rousseau-like illusions about the noble children of nature as in the happy Arcadia of the Golden Age. That you can still wish to have been born a barbarian in spite of your clear realization of the life involved is one more proof of the inexplicably diversity of human tastes. End quote. So he sort of is just saying here, yeah, I guess everyone has their own, their own kinks. Who am I to say it'd be bad to be a barbarian? Uh, he kind of talks about the dueling too. Now, I don't get the sense that Lovecraft fully understood that Howard was using Indians and dueling to sort of talk about barbarism as being something in and with civilization and not fully extricable because he still tends to see it as a either or proposition. You either civilized or you're a barbarian, right? But he does respond to the Indian stuff with a lot of like, oh, that's really interesting. And Indians are different and different. He goes back to the kind of American regionalism question and doesn't really see it as integral to the argument about civilization. Um, they p start to pick up a conversation about Ulster, and here they're not going to agree, as you might expect. Howard is, is basically for Irish unification. Um, Lovecraft, very pro, very, very Anglophilic, um, doesn't <laughs> have support. He's kind of like, well, the people in Ulster, they're really happy being part of, of the UK, so, or, so whatever. That they, they, they go back and forth a little bit on that too. 
Now, Howard, I guess I missed where he talked about this uh, earlier. Oh, it's here. It's on page 447 in the previous letter um, about where he goes on about Ulster. And he says, he kind of compares it with India um, and saying, like, you know, I kind of respect the independent struggle. Um, and Lovecraft responded to this kind of harshly, saying, um, if the free staters can't be contended with the free hand in all the parts of Ireland which the members of their own culture group actually inhabit, they certainly do not deserve a, a continuance of the sympathy which the general outside world has hitherto extended to them so freely. They claim to Scottish Presbyterian Ulster an almost absurd is almost as absurd as the sentimental claims of the Zionists due to essentially Arab, Muslim, Palestine. As for Indian Gandhi, the Hindu culture is about as sloppily decadent a mess as it is generated from an Aryan civilization, and the political incapacity of the people in such a way to produce complete chaos of British rule wherever it's drawn. End quote. So he kind of says, on the one hand, they're like the Indians who are just, would be chaotic. I don't know. He's wrong on both hands, I guess. Not that, I mean, post-independence India had its issues, but it was a little bit more successful democracies and the only other country of a comparable size was China, and they didn't—they they, they don't have any democracy. So whatever. Uh, but he kind of compares it to Zionism. Um, but anyways, they disagree. Anything else here? That's good. That's enough on that letter. So um, last one. Uh, there's a postcard uh, by Robert E. Howard missing. So, as I said before, there aren't many of them, but here's one, but it's missing sometime in the end of 32. But we've we got the, the final letter here is a pretty long one by Howard. That's what we're going to wrap up with today. And it's actually going to wrap up the first volume of, of A Means to Freedom. I think it's here he really gets into a, a bit of a philosophical conversation about physicality. And it, and it goes on for like eight pages or so. Um, and I'll just kind of sum up its it's arguments, but it's pretty compelling stuff where, because there's a point where, where Howard said like, like, like the bull or the, the ox is more physically capable of doing a certain test than I am. Right. And Lovecraft's like, well, of course, but you have a mind, right? You're not comparing yourself to an ox. And, And he says, yeah, but, but the point is not that I'm trying to be like an ox. The point is that I'm trying to maximize my capacities as much as I can, right? Um, and that's worthwhile to do um, because it does reduce suffering in my life. It makes me just simply stronger. And that's a good thing. That's a value in, its, in itself. And he kind of tries to put forth a philosophical argument for, uh, for the value of physicality, right? He says this. As for relative strength, I can't, to save my neck, see why I should despise, neglect, or ignore my body because a bull, elephant, or electric dynamo was stronger than it. I realize that I could never equal the strength of a bull, yet my own comparatively puny thews have stood me in ground stead time and again against both men and animals. Yesterday, for instance, I helped shift a, a load of hay bales from one barn to another, helped load a wagon with corn, and later did the bulk of unloading and storing 1,500 pounds of ground feed. All this work would have been done more easily and quickly with machinery, but I didn't have any. The fact that a regular could shoulder a heavy sack of grain and carry it to its proper place in the barn easier than I could didn't alert my problem any, that of getting the stuff stored. When I escort a girl through the crush of a football crowd, the knowledge that a rhinoceros could charge through the throng and clear the way for her more effectively than I could doesn't mean I'm going to let her get squashed as long as I have shoulders and elbows. So he's kind of saying, you're, you're making a ridiculous point here about an animal could do it just as well as me, you know, but we're not in animal societies. We're, we're, we're in a human society where a certain amount of physicality is useful, right? Not just for health, right? Just, just, to, just to get through the day and do the tasks that you need to do. And it's better to do it where, so it's easier. It's better to cultivate your body so doing those tasks are easier and... And better, and, but, and that's true for most of humanity, where physical labor is, is what we have to do. It's only the few who can, can fit themselves entirely to the mental, mental realm. So he makes a case, yeah, people should try to be as physically capable as possible. 
Um, and that doesn't necessarily take away from the mental life. And I really liked that, this part of his, his argument here. I thought it was a very thoughtful defense of, of what he's been trying to be saying for a while now, for a couple of years at this point, about sports and, and, and just his own affection for, for being physical. It's nice to think of Howard escorting a girl through a big crowd because it doesn't sound like something Lovecraft would do very often. It's kind of sticking it to him. Of course, I guess Howard Lovecraft was married. He never talks about girls. Um, I think that's the most interesting thing in this letter. There's some back and forth on civilization. On um, He kind of responds to the machine age. Lovecraft's offer up of a, of a possible machine age government. Um, a little bit more on the dueling stuff and Indians and, and all that kind of stuff. But um, oh, the, he gets back on the Ulster question too. And he kind of just says, yeah, maybe, but I'm going to stick with my blood. So, yeah, I think that that wraps up our our first. Uh, wraps up the first, uh, was it? Uh, two and a half years of, of correspondence between um, Howard and Lovecraft. Um, the second volume uh, of The Means to Freedom um, will take us right to Howard's death in in 36. Um so it's going to be 33 to 36. There are fewer letters uh, in the second half of their correspondence. Um, I want to say we had, what, 75 here? So that leaves 55 or so in the second volume. So they, they write a little bit less frequently in the second in the second half of the correspondence but there's still a lot of good stuff in these these letters um so we're going to work through four more episodes to to finish this look at the at the howard lovecraft letters um i'm enjoying it it's, it's getting a little repetitive though so i, I don't yet i don't think it's causing malaise yet but we'll, we'll see um i do hope to finish it before i get out of quarantine though which i think is totally possible i got one week left here and since I've already read these these things and taken notes, I think I'll, there'll be plenty of time to do those recordings. Um, but anyways, that's it for now. Um, let me know what you think of any of this stuff. Uh, send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com or contact me on the Twitter. Uh, that's it. I'll see you next time as we jump into 1933 um, and continue on into the conversations between Howard and Lovecraft. See you then. I used to go gay It first led to drinking And then to cards playing I'm shot in the breast And I'm dying today Let's sit jolly cow